Welcome to What Makes Up Your Mind, updates from the frontiers of neuroscience, well-being, and mental health from the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. This is your invitation to meet the faculty dedicated to understanding our most complex organ, committed to curing mental illness, and inspired to help create a healthier, thriving world. Hello again. Glad you've joined us on What Makes Up Your Mind. I'm Jane McMillan. You know, saying somebody is a bundle of energy or is a buzz with excitement, that's more than just a turn of phrase, because the human body is actually pulsating with measurable energy. At rest, we produce about 100 watts of electricity. Our cells are constructed to conduct electrical currents. Our nervous system uses them to send signals for movement and thought. And you know that cartoon image of a glowing light bulb popping up over somebody's head to indicate an idea? Well, that actually has a loose link to science because our brains run on about 20 watts. And that's enough to power a light bulb. And every one of our billions of brain neurons uses electrical charges to communicate with each other. So it makes sense, then, that medicine has found ways to utilize electrical currents as tools for healing. Most of us are familiar with the use of electrical impulses in physical therapy or in pacemakers to regulate the heartbeat, and also in the brain to treat diseases that affect motor skills like epilepsy and Parkinson's. But the field is expanding into electrical brain stimulation therapy for psychiatric illnesses. This includes the use of deep brain stimulation, DBS. And researchers tell us it holds promise for treating almost every mental illness from resistant depression to bipolar disorder. Now, this is where we turn things over to our expert, Dr. Mahendra Bhatti clinical professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences, and clinical professor of neurosurgery all at Stanford University. An investigator in the very first controlled clinical trials of DBS for depression, Dr. Body remains at the forefront of neuromodulation therapy research, including working with neurosurgeons to employ deep brain stimulation. Dr. Body. Thanks so much for joining us. I know your time is precious, and we really appreciate it. You're welcome. Let's talk about deep brain stimulation. First of all, could you just tell us about what it is? So many of us may have really outdated thoughts and a picture in our mind about what DBS would be, maybe scary old movies about electroshock therapy. And many of us don't have any idea about what can be done with stimulation in the brain. So let's start with just the procedure itself. Sure. Deep brain stimulation is a procedure where a neurosurgeon essentially places very long and tiny electrodes deep into the brain these electrodes are then connected by a wire to a pulse generator, which then gives neurologists or psychiatrists the ability to program and deliver stimulation to precise, deep targets within the brain. And that enables them to modulate brain circuits uh, that are involved in things like movement, emotion regulation, and so forth. So when you say modulate, what does it 
physically do in the brain? Does it move something? Does it vibrate something? What really happens in there with this modulator? So there are different ways to essentially stimulate or alter the neuronal firing of the brain. But the most common way to alter the neuronal firing of the brain, and specifically with DBS, is by the use of uh, electrical occurrence or electrical stimulation. Uh, DBS specifically doesn't move anything physically. It's a, it's a needle-like electrode that's positioned in a place where it's able to deliver different types of alternating electrical currents into different brain areas to make those parts of the brain either become more active or less active, depending on how you stimulate them. Okay. And that, of course, would be dependent upon what is being treated. And we're going to talk more about what can be treated this way and, and tests on what might be treated in the future this way. But maybe we could just stay with the procedure for a minute more and tell us, is it painful? Are patients conscious or sedated? Yeah, so there are multiple parts to getting deep brain stimulation. Obviously, the first part is being eligible for the uh, intervention, and that usually uh, is undertaken with a, a neurosurgeon in addition to a neurologist or a psychiatrist. But uh, at the first stage, patients, after being evaluated for DBS and deemed an appropriate candidate for DBS, patients are referred to neurosurgeons, and then they surgically implant uh, the DBS device. That procedure is probably the most intense part of the procedure. It's like getting a, a, a pacemaker for your brain. So it's, it's not a major heart surgery, but it is surgery that in most cases, requires general anesthesia and cutting of tissue of some sort, you know, like the bone or, or, or the skin. But the surgery itself is not usually that cumbersome from a surgical perspective. And many patients don't need to be hospitalized for very long and heal relatively quickly. It's a relatively painless surgery compared to some of the other surgeries that exist. Uh, and once the patients heal, then they return to the doctor's office uh, and then undergo some testing of the device. It really depends on what's being treated and, and in what context, but the device is usually turned on at a relatively mild intensity and then subsequently adjusted based on what patients can tolerate. In that stage of DBS where patients are undergoing the electrical stimulation, uh, there can be a range of, of side effects, but it's generally not painful. Uh, and the most common side effects are related generally to where you're targeting and, and what you're trying to treat. So some patients, for example, could, if, if the DBS is in an area of the brain like the thalamus, can experience abnormal elevations in mood. Some patients can have abnormal sensations or experiences like deja vu, but these are generally transient symptoms that go away when the stimulation is stopped and readjusted. And that's kind of how DBS plays out with most patients is they get surgery to implant the device, and then they have subsequent periodic programming sessions where 
side effects are identified and programming changes are made. And, and that's not really a, a painful process to go through. It's basically going for a doctor's checkup and the doctor kind of fine tuning uh, a therapy that's, that's ongoing and is being refined uh, as time goes by. You know, people would often never guess that these patients have undergone brain surgery, and, and many of these patients don't really have any real notion of, of, of a foreign device being implanted in their body. The device sort of becomes part of who they are and doesn't create any real interference or alteration in one's, one's daily activities. And so then is the modulation or the delivering of an impulse that is therapeutic, is that done only by a doctor in a doctor's office? Is there any self-regulation of the pacemaker-like device inserted? There is, actually. And as a, as a safety mechanism, well, well first off, uh, there are other people involved in the programming other than doctors. There are nurse practitioners and other advanced healthcare providers, and there are also researchers and device representatives who all have unique approaches to programming who oftentimes work together to actually do the programming. Uh, but as a safety intervention, because these patients do go home with these devices working, uh, as a safety intervention, virtually all patients who have DBS are given the option to turn off their devices. There are certain DBS devices where patients are offered the ability to alter the current, for example, of DBS or to sort of turn it up or turn it down. And then there are also options currently where patients can kind of choose between different settings as a way to sort of test out different stimulations, especially in a longer way than is possible at a, at a brief doctor's visit. So there is some self-determination with this treatment. Is that dependent upon how somebody is feeling at the moment? Is there a constant current being delivered or is there a sensory trigger that causes the device to begin treatment? All of the above. Uh, it really depends on the types of devices that are used. And, and with all of the amazing new technology that is currently available and is coming out, we have the option to do all of those things. There are a lot of unknowns related to DBS. So a lot of it still really is an art. Uh, and a lot of it still is a trial and error. And patients uh, and different people are involved in this, invested in this, and we're constantly trying different approaches to try to optimize the DBS treatments. And this is at the crux of, of your work, testing this and trying this for uh, mental illnesses, for psychiatric treatment. The picture that I'm getting in my mind is some of the footage that we've seen that was revolutionary a few years ago, several years ago, in treating Parkinson's disease while the patient was conscious and being able to tell the doctor while they were in the brain and could manipulate according to the patient's feeling and movement. Are we along the same lines with this when we're talking about how DBS is used and how it can be fine-tuned? Yeah, that, that is a, a actual very challenging aspect of using DBS in psychiatry. When DBS was first used in movement disorders, it was really remarkable to see those videos where patients' tremors would stop as soon as the DBS was turned on or, or the tremors would return as soon as the 
the DBS uh, was turned off. But when it comes to using DBS for conditions like depression or obsessive compulsive disorder, there isn't a tremor, for example, associated with either of those conditions. They're more related to a person's subjective state, their, their emotional state and what they're thinking. And it's a little harder to assess that uh, when you are doing the programming or delivering stimulation for uh, when, when one is using DBS for treatment of psychiatric disorders. So people are working on that and there have been efforts to stimulate in the operating room and observe what's going on subjectively with a patient, but also electrically with a person's neurons by using a recording electrode. But no one has really come to any clear idea of how to do something similar to what the movement disorder neurologists do with treatment of tremor and Parkinson's disease with what is being done mostly in a research setting for treatment of depression and OCD. Uh, so it's a, it's a challenging area where people are still doing a lot of research, but that is something that I think would help the field out in psychiatry tremendously is if we could identify something that directly turns on and off and is associated directly with the DBS stimulation. Oh, sure. One of my questions was with all of the millions and millions of neurons in the brain and the intricate nervous system of a human, how would you even know physically where to locate a stimulator for a psychiatric illness? Yeah, that's a very good question. And uh, there are basically two approaches uh, people are taking. One is based on history and what was previously known from prior neurosurgical approaches to treating psychiatric conditions. Uh, one of the areas where DBS is placed today for treatment of obsessive compulsive disorder is targeting the same area where neurosurgeons pre-DBS used to go in and ablate or burn or destroy in an effort to treat conditions like obsessive compulsive disorder and depression. And because of that historical experience and the outcomes that were observed from those older neurosurgical interventions, people thought to then apply DBS to the same areas without the need to destroy tissue, but using electricity as a way to interfere with the neuronal function in a similar way that destroying neuronal tissue might. The other approach that people are taking in targeting DBS for psychiatric conditions is mostly based on neuroimaging, and that's mostly involved things like functional MRI which has offered these incredible pictures of people's brains and have allowed us to start to dissect the important circuits involved in uh, conditions like depression. And people are using functional neuroimaging to build out these brain networks, which neurosurgeons then target with DBS in an effort to modulate those networks and improve patient symptoms. And it's interesting to see what's happening because over time, this process is getting refined. The technology is being improved. We're learning more about the brain. And I really do think down the road, we'll, we'll have a much clearer idea of how to target DBS for potentially a broader number of conditions that currently are difficult to treat otherwise. Which psychiatric conditions are now being at least 
tested or looked at for treatment with DBS? And you mentioned depression and OCD. Uh, would bipolar be a potential condition that could be addressed with DBS or, or what others? In theory, any brain condition could be targeted by DBS, but we may not need to necessarily have patients undergo a neurosurgical procedure in order to stimulate their brains in a way that DBS would as well. So there are a large number of psychiatric and neurological conditions being investigated for treatment at DBS today. And these include additional conditions like eating disorders, addiction, PTSD. All of these conditions are being investigated currently for DBS. But we also have new types of brain stimulation technologies that are emerging, such as transcranial magnetic stimulation, which allow us to non-invasively stimulate the brain, eliminating the need for a neurosurgical intervention like DBS. So this is a rapidly evolving field where we are gaining a larger number of tools and a, and a growing body of knowledge that are enabling us to offer really quite sophisticated interventions to modulate the brain and potentially treat neurological and psychiatric illnesses. Really life-changing for sufferers, especially those who have to go through trial and error with medications. And thank goodness we have medications. But for difficult cases or resistant cases, this could be just life-changing. Absolutely. I've seen it numerous times. And I think that is one of the strongest factors that motivate us to do this work because we recognize the inadequacy of treatments such as medications. And we've seen patients who haven't benefited from medications get tremendous benefit from these brain stimulation uh, interventions. Psychiatry is really undergoing a revolution right now, especially in neuroscience. And we are going to have a much larger armamentarium to treat psychiatric conditions other than with talk therapy uh, and medications. You know, you, you're, the excitement level in your voice when you were talking about the life-changing uh, possibilities with this just now, can you, can you put us in your shoes in the operating room or in the treatment room as you are with neurosurgeons testing this and doing this and seeing some of the results that you just described? It's a tremendous privilege. It's awe-inspiring, especially to see the patients and their courage in going through all of this. It's awe-inspiring to see the neurosurgeons do the surgery and seeing their interest in helping very difficult to treat patients. It's really inspiring because of what we're able to learn about the, the mind and brain. There have been several instances in doing this work, especially DBS, where I felt like I was the first person to do something and to see something. And patients were in my shoes as well. They were the first people to actually experience what this type of intervention might do. And it's been really a, a really amazing experience from that perspective. I can only imagine. Yeah. You mentioned the non-invasive transcranial stimulation. And, you know, the FDA has cleared, I believe, at least one home device. And then there are some DIY ideas floating around and on the marketplace. Are these do-it-yourself or home stimulation devices 
really beneficial? Snake oil? What's your feeling about this? Yeah, it's very difficult to understand. I don't I don't think even most physicians understand the landscape of, of brain stimulation devices. There is a lot of interest in this area from patients and doctors. We have a mental health crisis in this country where there aren't enough psychiatrists to treat patients. And there's DIY technology and tools out there where people can do things to experiment and potentially treat themselves. The good thing, though, is that anything that's at home currently or anything that a patient might do more or less on their own is relatively safe in that it's not using a extremely strong or high voltage current to uh, do anything harmful to the brain. But I do think, and this is just my opinion, not everyone would agree with me, I do think we have to democratize this technology and we have to allow people of all kinds to be able to use these remarkable tools to enhance their well-being, their lives, improve you know, their performance in certain things, as long as it's safe. And that's where institutions like the FDA play an important role. And it's going to be amazing to see all the things that come out in the future and how they are applied. But I think we are going to see more and more people at home using brain stimulation technology as a way to treat themselves without necessarily the need to undergo surgery or, or visit a doctor's office. As you were describing your work where you are there with neurosurgeons as a psychiatrist in the operating room or where this new mechanism and these new techniques are being tested on psychiatric illnesses. That, to me, that picture of you and the neurologist, that is really where brain and mind come together. In other talks that you and I have had, we've talked about altered states of consciousness. And for a doctor of psychiatry and a psychiatric patient, where is that meeting of what's determined to be perhaps the condition versus the person's inner personality versus what's normal, what needs to be treated and what doesn't. And if there are altered states of consciousness, who chooses what's normal for the person and maybe what's truth or what's correct? Yeah, that's a very... Uh, uh difficult question to answer. I don't think we really understand. And, and so much of our existence is in the context of not only uh, neuroscience and the brain, but it's in the context of our relationships, our development, our, our culture, our identities. And that is one of the things I think is so impressive, but also challenging with psychiatry is that it has to have this ability to look at the mind within all of these different contexts and come up with a treatment for these very subjective conscious states that we really don't, don't understand. I think really what's at the crux of being an effective psychiatrist is, is trying to be empathic and understand what your patient is subjectively going through. And really the only way that we can do that, the only 
only mechanism by which we can tell what another person's subjective state is is through empathy and through through our our experiences and, and our understandings of what people go through and and that you know brings us into more philosophical aspects or interpersonal aspects of psychiatry that are difficult to quantify from a neuroscientific perspective I think it's one of the big challenges of psychiatry, but also to how psychiatrists can be beneficial to their patients who are each going through their own individual struggles. It seems that that would be the question that every psychiatrist would ask themselves before recommending a treatment or working with a patient to come to a conclusion about a treatment is what needs to be treated, what is that person's internal personality, their soul, versus what is a condition that is causing them unhappiness or causing them suffering. And in utilizing some treatments that can alter states of consciousness, that to me is a very intimate, and you use the word art maybe, artful use of this science. I agree. It is. It is. And and one example where this type of an approach is being taken is with the use of psychedelics. Uh, psychedelics are tools to alter consciousness. And, and some people argue that the psychedelic state in and of itself is a unique conscious state. But the thinking behind all of this, one of the theories about all of this is that with the use of psychedelic to alter a person's subjective conscious state, you're essentially dissolving their ego. If someone is, for example, has obsessive compulsive disorder and is stuck in this obsessive way of thinking, it's thought that something like a psychedelic might make that person's ego dissolve, make that person sort of selfless or have a different subjective conscious state so that they're not as confined or trapped by that obsessive sort of ego or or way of thinking. And and this is where the field is going. And it's amazing to think of what might happen as we learn more and more about all of these different approaches and interventions. But as someone, as a psychiatrist who specializes in, in brain stimulation, I think psychedelics are a part of that or akin to brain stimulation in that they're, they're these really sophisticated ways to alter the mind and brain in a way that other conventional treatments uh, can't. Could deep brain stimulation alter someone's personality? Is that a possible side effect? Well, first off, it's it's very difficult sometimes to really have a clear idea of what exactly personality is. Uh, but yes, DBS can alter how a person thinks or feels or acts. And I've seen uh, cases where patients who were depressed for many years all of a sudden became hypomanic and full of energy and impulsive. So I do think that DBS has the ability to alter things like, uh, you know, our, our personality and so forth, but we don't really understand the connection between, say, brain circuits and personality in a way for us to really understand if there is a ability to change things like personality with DBS. But when one takes sort of... Um, conventional neuropsychological approaches and uses, you know, neuropsychological tests, one doesn't typically see significant changes in things like personality or cognition when DBS is used appropriately. 
And just to clarify, of course, we do want changes in some brain circuitry that alleviate suffering. So that's different from talking about changing somebody's personality. Correct. Correct. But but it raises an interesting question, right? Especially when we talk about the neuro enhancement and the people who want to think faster or need to sleep less and so forth, you know, there's a negative side to most technology. And, and in addition to potentially helping those who are suffering, these tools could potentially be used in inappropriate ways. How much do you foresee with these new developments and looking several years down the line, how involved the patient is without the knowledge of a psychiatrist or without the knowledge of a neurologist when we're talking about the ego and personality and altering aspects of that to deal with a mental illness, how involved can they be or would you like them to be in their own treatment in these really new realms? I think it really depends on the patient and the type of treatment that's being considered. There are so many factors that need to be considered in different treatments and how they're applied and to what degree does a patient have autonomy with certain treatments. So, so it, it's really complicated to answer that question. But in the uh, psychedelic space, you know, there are a lot of people who are self-medicating essentially without really fully knowing the effectiveness of, of interventions like that. These are all things that we really need to examine as things evolve. And you do work with patients. It's not just the research into a DBS. So what would you tell patients out there who are listening who might say, how do I find out more about this? How do I tap in to see if there might be something in this for me? Yeah, that's a difficult one to answer because there just aren't a lot of places where these treatments are easily available. Uh, most of these treatments are offered in the context of research and clinical trials. So I encourage patients to look at web pages like clinicaltrials.gov or to contact their local universities and medical schools to see if there are any potential clinical trials available that they can participate in. But until we have a change in attitudes about treatments that are available for psychiatric patients and also a greater understanding of how these treatments work, particularly the newer ones, I think it's going to be very difficult for people to access a lot of these treatments. So there's a lot that needs to be done in order to, like I said earlier, democratize these treatments and make them freely available despite how rich you are or, or who you are or where you live. So a little bit frustrating, but you are in your lab and so many more like you are in their labs working on these right now. And that's very hopeful. Yes. One, one, one step at a time. <laughs> one collective step at a time. Dr. Body, thank you so much for explaining all this to us. We look forward to hearing more from you. Thank you so much, Jane. Dr. Mahendra Bhatti. Stanford Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and Clinical Professor of Neurosurgery. He's part of the team at Stanford Interventional Psychiatry Clinic, where specialized device-based interventions are provided, and he directs a clinical fellowship in interventional psychiatry. Dr. Body hopes to encourage more young psychiatrists to engage in these new treatment possibilities. And as you heard, Dr. Body has a particular interest in further understanding consciousness and its role in mental illness and healing. 
please do check our program notes for links to Dr. Body's work and for links to where DBS patient trials might be available, including the Stanford Brain Stimulation Lab. We hope you've been stimulated by these new treatment developments. Until next time on What Makes Up Your Mind, I'm Jane McMillan. You've been listening to What Makes Up Your Mind. Updates from the frontiers of neuroscience, well-being, and mental health from the experts in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. For more information on this program and all of our transformational work, visit us at med.stanford.edu slash psychiatry. What Makes Up Your Mind, Updates from the Frontiers of Neuroscience, Well-Being, and Mental Health is a production of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine, a copyright of the Board of Trustees of Stanford University.